All right. Um, good evening, everyone. Thank you very much. Um, welcome uh, to the Michael Spence Building at the University of Sydney, unless, of course, you're from the University of Sydney and um, you're um, at home. I'm uh, Michael Green. I'm the CEO uh, of the U.S. Studies Center and professor at the University of Sydney. Um, and we're delighted you joined us to talk about the Quad. The President uh, Biden's uh, trip was canceled, but the Quad lives on. And so we thought it's, it's good to talk about what was on the agenda, what will they talk about in uh, Hiroshima. Um, and uh, to do that with me, I have um, three distinguished panelists. Um, let me first, though, um, acknowledge we are um, on the land of the, um, uh, the the University of Sydney, which is on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, with respects to their leaders past, present, emerging as custodians of this land. And um, joining me to talk about the Quad, uh, the political, <clears throat> geopolitical uh, context, um, are Dr. Lavina Lee. Um, Lavina is a non-resident fellow with the U.S. Studies Center um, and is a senior lecturer in the Department of Security Studies and Criminology at Macquarie University. Um, she was appointed in 2020 by the Defense Minister to the Council of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. She's led projects for the Australian government on um, issues in the region, uh, including the Quad, uh, Chinese influence in Southeast Asia, um, democracy issues and governance issues, joined us for our recent um, Sunnylands retreat um, to look at democracy with leaders from the region. Um, and uh, next to Lavina is Dr. Uh, Peter Dean. Peter is the uh, Director of Foreign Policy and Defense and a professor at the University of Sydney. He was Dean of the University of Western Australia's first uh, Chair uh, of Defense Studies, um, Inaugural Director of the UWA Defense and Security Institute, um, and most recently was uh, co-lead for the, not, um, the um, uh, Defense Strategic Review, which you would all be familiar with, um, co-chaired by Sir Angus Houston and Ambassador uh, Stephen Smith. Um, but all the hard work fell on Pete. Um, and then uh, next to Pete is uh, Tom Corbin. Tom's a research fellow in the Foreign Policy and Defense Program at the U.S. Studies Center, works on Indo-Pacific strategy. He put out a report, he's put out a number of reports recently, um, uh, including one on ITAR, the export control rules in the um, way of implementing AUKUS, very detailed report, um, if you like that sort of thing, uh, and also a recent report on the possibilities for greater maritime security cooperation among the Quad partners. So what we'll do is, um, I'm going to say a little bit about the Quad origin story um, and what it means that President Biden uh, is not coming to Australia. And I'll do both of those as a uh, historian, but also as someone who was in the White House for five years and Pentagon before that and saw what happened when presidents cancel visits. Um, I'll ask Levina to pick up from there, talk a bit about what that means um, uh, and what the agenda on the Quad will be and how it will um, look over the coming weeks, months, and years. Um, uh, Pete is going to give us a perspective on the Quad as it fits in Australian strategic discourse and planning. Um, particularly, of course, from the perspective of the recent defense strategic view. And as I said, Tom has finished a report on maritime security cooperation, what is uh, likely, um, what is possible um, uh, with this uh, grouping of four maritime democracies. So, and then we'll open it up and get your questions, comments, um, uh, criticisms, praise. Um, we probably won't have time for criticism, so we'll just go right to the praise. So um, the Quad, where did it come from? So you think I'm going to tell you it came from the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami, but actually the Quad in, 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 in the sense of 
four maritime nations cooperating to keep a, a, an open uh, a, a maritime order in the Indo-Pacific goes back to the 1850s um, when um, Commodore Matthew Perry, who of course um, with his famous black ships opened Japan um, to commerce in relations with the United States and the rest of the world, returned to the United States and in the 1850s, 1856, 57, I gave a series of speeches, which I write about in a, in a book um, I, I published a few years ago, um, talking about the future of America's role in, in the Indo-Pacific, in, in, the, in the Asia Pacific, or as they call it then, the Pacific. Um, and in it, he wrote that someday, um, uh, the cross of St. George, um, the star and stripes, and, uh, and the Japan, uh, uh, entry into this game will cooperate and our navies will safeguard um, freedom and uh, openness in the Pacific. That's 1856, 1857. So you take the cross of St. George and you replace it, the British Empire in this region with Australia and India. And in 1856, 57, Commodore Matthew Perry was proposing a quad. Uh, a very natural idea for an American strategic thinker um, looking at how a middle power at the time maintains order with other uh, middle powers and great powers in the region. Um, Alfred Thayer Mahan in the 1890s, probably the most important American strategic thinker, uh, certainly of the 19th uh, century, argued that someday um, the Pacific Ocean would be um, kept free and open by a quad. His quad was the United States, Japan, Britain, and Germany which was a new rising naval power with interests in the Pacific Islands um, in the 1880s and 90s. Um, uh, they were both ahead of their time. Um, I think Mahan was probably wrong about Germany, um, at least so far. Um, but this is an idea that has a, a logic to it for maritime powers concerned about the overall distribution of power and maintenance of rules and orders that goes back, way back in American uh, history, and I could talk about Japan as well, by the way, but I'll save that for the Q&A, because there was similar thinking actually in Japan in the 1850s and 60s as well. Um, the, the, the origin story of the current quad um, goes to the um, more recent history and the Boxing Day 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami um, and earthquake. I was the senior uh, uh, official in the White House at the National Security Council in charge of the um, Indo-Pacific um, at the time. It was in between Christmas and New Year's, so almost um, my entire staff was gone. Um, the only staff I had of, of eight people was uh, Professor Victor Cha, who some of you may know. He's a Korea expert. We brought him in from Georgetown University to run our Korea-Japan work. And I said, come in between Christmas and New Year's. Nothing happens. It's quiet. You can read up. And then the tsunami happened. And he suddenly uh, became um, our point person with me for the response. We didn't know how big the tsunami damage was at first, um, but eventually um, satellites indicated um, that it was massive. And I remember seeing images of Banda Aceh where um, whole villages and towns looked like matchsticks, just absolutely wiped out. The TNI, the Indonesian military couldn't get there to, to provide relief. Um, Jamia Islamia, the terrorist organization was trying to get there first. Sri Lanka wiped out Phuket, the Nicobar and Andaman Islands. The US 7th Fleet, home ported in Yokosuka, was steaming uh, through the Indian Ocean to the Middle East. Um, in those days, as you can imagine, we were moving a lot of assets from Asia uh, to uh, Afghanistan and Iraq um, and the Central Command. 
And the, the admiral in charge sort of slowed down. Uh, he had gone to command and staff college in India. He was home ported in Yokosuka. And one of his best mates was the commander of the Royal Australian Navy. So he got on the secure phone with all of them and said, we're the only navies that can actually cover this whole region and provide relief. He called back to the Pentagon, the Pentagon called the White House. 12 hours later, all four governments, all four leaders agreed, let's do it. So that was a quad. It was with the backdrop that the US in particular, I don't think Australia was there yet or Japan, but the US in particular, the Bush administration, but the Clinton administration had these ideas too, was looking at India as a key part of the um, emerging order um, in this part of the world. Um, and so there was certainly that geopolitical strategic backdrop, but it was really about um, people who knew each other um, and the speed with which these four governments said, yes, we've got the means, we've got the fleets, we've got the helicopters, let's do it, save probably tens of thousands of lives. The Quad was an open architecture, it was not against anyone. Um, very rapidly, the UN, Singapore, Korea, Canada, and eventually even China joined. Um, China was very slow to join and sent a mobile field hospital pretty much after everyone had been rescued, but did show up. And afterwards, people in Washington, in Canberra, and Tokyo, and Delhi thought that was interesting. Um, we did a memo in the White House we shared with our counterparts saying maybe we're onto something, maybe this should be a more permanent grouping. Um, but it lost favor. Um, uh, Prime Minister Abe of Japan in 2006 in a book promised that if he was elected head of the LDP prime minister, he would create a quad summit. And that was too much in 2006. Relations with China were better. Um, it was too rich. And it fell out of favor, but it came back. And it came back largely, in my view, this is not the official version, largely in my view, because uh, Beijing began um, putting enormous course of pressure on all four countries. And um, the move from uh, foreign ministers meeting to what we now have, which is a summit, was proposed by the Biden administration. Many people in the Biden administration who championed this when they were in the Obama administration did not think the Quad was a good idea. It was getting in the way of strategic reassurance uh, with China. But by 2021, it was a different China. Xi Jinping was not Hu Jintao. Um, and what really made the quad, the quad was the, was the uh, Indian attacks, excuse me, the Chinese attacks on Indian troops in the, um, in, in the, in the Galwan Valley and Daklan and the Himalayas. Uh, two dozen Indian boys killed. India needed to show it had friends. So there's this geopolitical frame for sure, this balance of power frame for sure. But what the Quad mostly does is what it originally did, which was providing public goods. So the original mission was humanitarian disaster relief. The current agenda, Levina will talk about, but it focuses on um, primarily providing um, uh, resilience, assistance, financing, and health security for the Indo-Pacific. Um, could it do more? Tom will talk about that. The answer is yes. These four navies, these four militaries know how to work together. Do the four governments want to go there? Not yet, but it is definitely sort of in the background. Um, let me break break before I turn to Levina, just say a, a, a word about the cancellation of the president's visit. Um, this is not good for American foreign policy. It is definitely not good for the narratives about America. Um, there's been you know, a rush to the microphone by um, pundits here, um, some in the US and Japan saying that's it, um, uh, America's not up for, up for leadership in this region. 
Um, it is damaging in terms of the narrative. It certainly, I think, will hand Beijing a nice talking point to use in Southeast Asia. See, we told you the Americans are far away. We live in the neighborhood. Um, my own sense, I think Lavina agrees, is the 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 hysteria is a bit overblown. You would think that you know Joe Biden just surrendered Singapore, or lost the Battle of the Coral Sea, or something. Um, I don't think anybody remembers that in 1995, Bill Clinton also stuck in a debt negotiation with the Republican-controlled Congress, canceled his Asia trip. In 2015, Barack Obama stuck in a tough negotiation with the Republican Congress, canceled his Asia visit. It, I can't think of a history or even a political or diplomatic history that says that was a turning point, that was a disaster. It's a loss of momentum, it's a narrative damage, but the agenda moves on. Um, and as you'll see, uh, and I think from here from Lavina, the agenda for the Quad is gonna happen in a truncated form. The president's uh, trip to Papua New Guinea was a big deal. Um, the expectation was there'd be an announcement of a security agreement, that's a big deal. We don't know the leadership of Papua New Guinea that well in the United States. This is a this is not something you just delegate to someone else. So the president has invited um, his counterpart for a state visit in the US. And it comes on the back of some pretty successful state visits, um, Korean President Yoon and Philippine President Marcos. Korean Philippines, a year or two ago, uh, two years ago, under Duterte, under Moon Jae-in, most people said, ah, they're, America's losing them, these alliances are in trouble. Those two summits were um, chock full of detailed agreements on security and diplomatic cooperation. So President Biden has a bit of the luck of the Irish. Um, those were a series of good summits. He got unlucky on this one. Um, uh, th frankly, the, the issue that's scarier is can they resolve the debt issue? <laughs> we could talk about that if you like. I think they almost certainly will. That's scary. The loss on the diplomatic calendar hurts, but it's not the end of American diplomacy in my view. So over to Lavina, and then we'll turn to Pete and Tom and open it up to you all. Yeah. I'm assuming that all of you, because you're here, were very interested in quad-related uh, news stories this morning. So you were probably inundated with uh, the assessments that were being made about the loss of uh, American stature and reliability um, and that you know, it's a it's a terrible gift to the Chinese to be able to have this narrative confirmed that America is in decline, um, and that we shouldn't rely on them. Um, now, I I kind of see that the the cancellation of a visit does feed that narrative. We we can't deny that that's the case, but I think um, we shouldn't really overplay what's happened. And I, along the lines of what um, what's just been spoken about, I think. There's a precedent there. It almost seems unlucky that Asia visits seem to be scheduled at the time of debt negotiations. Perhaps that should be changed sometime in the future. Yes. <laughs> um, but I think what we should think about is if international relations and strategic policy is based on whether heads of states attend foreign summits, then I think even China would be in trouble. So we have to remember that Xi Jinping abandoned all international travel from February 2020 until September 2022. And clearly China is still a major power, even though the president uh, self-imposed in isolation there. Now, I think the optics are unfortunate. It's unfortunate for Australia and the Albanese government that they've lost an opportunity to augment um, Australia's standing in the region, in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Um, but strategic policy and the Quad specifically is, is about much more than leaders meeting face-to-face. -face. 
Uh, the US has not lost its leadership because Biden decided to skip Australia for now. Um, and I think that the Quad will go from strength to strength because there's a, a strategic need and an appetite for it. And I don't think that Xi Jinping will be breathing a sigh of relief. Now, the rebirth of the Quad in November 2017 and its rapid advance since then could not have occurred uh, in the absence of a more assertive and aggressive China in our region, as Mike has already spoken about. Um, all four countries have been uh, the direct subject of Chinese coercion in one way or another over the last four years, with Japan and India bearing this on a continuing basis. Um, and we can talk about, all of you are very familiar about China's aggressive assertion of its territorial claims in the South China Sea, East China Sea, Taiwan, along its Himalayan border with India. And all of this has become pretty much the new normal. And whilst the, the pain of Beijing's ongoing economic coercion of Australia is fading, I think we are forgetting a bit, I don't think we should forget it. Now, beyond Beijing's increasing belligerence, China's aims um, and objectives present a comprehensive challenge to the US-led liberal order in everything from diplomacy, trade, technology, military power, and the promotion of authoritarian values and ways of doing business. And the Quad emerged because existing alliances and institutions were simply not up to the task of defending an open, non-hierarchical order and maintaining what our foreign minister describes as a strategic equilibrium. Now, the Quad, I think, has made remarkable progress in embedding and institutionalizing their cooperation over the last five years. Up until now, the leaders of the four countries have met four times, uh, virtually and in person since March 2021. Uh, beyond that, the Quad foreign ministers have met annually since uh, 2019 and most recently in March of 2023. And cooperation um, between embassies and bureaucracies of the four countries occurs regularly and at all levels. Um, so we can't forget about how deeply entrenched the Quad has become. And last week I was moderating a discussion uh, with the Quad Sherpa, the Australian Quad Sherpa, and he spoke about the fact that what's very different now is the fact that he and others in the system regularly just pick up the phone and call each other if there's a problem, whereas before they didn't even know what institutional mechanisms there were to communicate with one another. So that's a, a qualitative difference. Now, there are six leader-level working groups to coordinate government policy on things like health, security, climate, critical and emerging technologies, space, infrastructure, and cybersecurity. And all of these have been established in the last two years. And thus far, there have been some notable outcomes. And I think worth mentioning is the delivery of 800 million COVID vaccines globally, uh, a regional maritime domain awareness pa partnership tackling illegal fishing and a quad partnership on humanitarian and disaster relief. Now, overall, um, I think this work reflects four objectives of the quad countries. Uh, firstly, to demonstrate to the region that the four democracies can deliver public goods to the region, as Mike mentioned before, but crucially without strings attached. And this builds legitimacy for the Quad, especially given the sensitivities around ASEAN centrality. 
And in some areas, the Quad provides public goods to give alternatives to Chinese offerings or to build capacity of smaller states to help themselves. And here I'm, I'll mention the Maritime Domain Awareness Initiative that was announced last year. Secondly, the Quad aims to promote and entrench standards for infrastructure investment, critical technologies and ecosystems that support an open liberal order in the region. And this is a direct counter to China's ability to set opaque, hierarchical, and in some cases, anti-democratic or anti-liberal international standards. Thirdly, to build resilient supply chains to limit China's capacity to coerce or exert economic leverage against any one of those quad members, especially in critical industries and emerging technologies. And fourth, to signal a latent capacity of the group to become a more robust security grouping. And whilst the second and third objectives remain, I think, a work in progress, on the latter, Australia is uh, due to host the Malabar exercises for the first time this year. And the Malabar includes all four quad par partners. And what's um, not necessarily mentioned or known is that all four countries have been conducting more frequent military exercises and exchanges. Uh, they have implemented and agreed on uh, various legal um, agreements on logistics, information sharing, uh, defense technology cooperation and acquisitions. And all of this might not formally be under the quad uh, mantle, but informally these things have been uh, progressing very steadily. And I think the next step that we might see, um, and I think that we probably should see, is that we should see a defence minister's meeting added to the Quad agenda, I think, sometime soon. So I, I would end by saying that complacency um, isn't, uh, this. We, we shouldn't be complacent, so the Quad shouldn't be complacent. Legitimate questions will be raised if the working groups are unable to produce firm deliverables on things like standard setting and building resilient supply chains within, I think, the next year. And given China's increasing belligerence against Taiwan and the growing risks of deliberate or inadvertent conflict in the Taiwan Strait or the South China Sea for that matter, the Quad should be sending firmer deterrent signals to Be Beijing. Now, the point is that the absence of progress in these areas and not the cancellation of a face-to-face -face meeting is what will indicate whether America is still well-placed to lead and Biden is the president who can do that. Now, I'm going to leave it there, but I've also been tasked to talk about India and uh, Southeast Asia's response to the Quad, but I'll leave that to Q&A if that's um, what interests you. Great. Thanks, Lavina. Thanks. Thanks, and um, good to see everybody here. I just wanted to talk briefly about a, a few things to leverage off of both Mike and Lavina have said, um, particularly from the Australian perspective and how um, the Quad is, is being approached. And here I want to talk particularly about the broader strategic makeup of the Indo-Pacific region and realistically how the Defence Strategic Review and the government is starting to recognise and understand. So one of the key things that was said in the DSR that the government has accepted and put out in the public version. And I just want to note that you know the Defence Strategic Review was delivered to government on the 14th of February. The one that's out in the public is a public version that the, the government has put out there, not the DSR. 
But um, it's it speaks specifically about that the United States is no longer you know got primacy in the Indo-Pacific region. What we're dealing with here is a much more multipolar um, region, and it's what it's really about is about the regional balance of power. And in particular, where I think the Quad fits into that is that broader strategic balance. I'm not talking about a military balance of power, not the hard power elements of it, but that broader strategic balance. And I think what's really key there is the emphasis now that's on Australian statecraft. So this is not just um, defence doing its thing over here and DFAT doing its thing over here, but having a coordinated approach to Australian international affairs that brings together foreign policy and defence policy in a unified whole, but also is much actually broader than that, which is reflective of some of the Quad agenda. So it's much more broader about how you do infrastructure in the region through that strategic lens, how you do investment through trade and economic engagement and economic security. So Australia has very much started to view, or at least now reframed the way the Quad is occurring within that notion of the broader strategic balance within the Indo-Pacific. And that's very much, uh, as I said, about the public goods aspect of this, about cooperation on, on a range of issues, including some maritime security um, uh, areas as well. So uh, the DSR does actually talk about the Quad in, in one particular area, and it talks about it basically as part of Australia's broader balancing strategy, external balancing strategy that it's been undertaking now for a good 10 years um, in order to help maintain that favourable strategic balance in the region to allow the country to be able to maintain its sovereignty and its strategic autonomy and to be able to make sovereign decisions independent of coercion and be able to support a system within the Indo-Pacific that allows other states to do exactly the same thing. So Penny Wong, for instance, the week before the Defence Strategic Review came out, gave an excellent, what I thought was a really excellent speech at the press club. And when she spoke about the Quad, she highlighted that the Quad reflects, and I quote, the power, weight and influence of Japan and India to the regional strategic balance. So they're seeing that there's importance of those particular individual states, but also how they come together in this minilateral grouping to provide those public goods and to provide an emphasis on that, that free and open or free and liberal Indo-Pacific um, order. The Prime Minister um, spoke about the Quad recently in very much in reflection, he said, in relation to the re shaping of our region. So what he was talking about there was that changing balance of power in the region. And he said, and I quote, the Quad is needed now more than ever as a result of that regional reordering and the changing nature of our strategic environment. And of course, Penny Wong, as, as Lavina said, talk, likes to talk about this phrase strategic equilibrium um, in the region. And she's particularly spoken about the Quad a couple of times now as about being key to that strategic equilibrium which provides benefits to all states within the Indo-Pacific region. Um, the other thing that I'll highlight from the DSI has a particular emphasis in one part of it on the, the growing importance of the North East Indian Ocean to Australia's strategic and defence interests, and that this is now more of a priority area than it used to be. Um, that is particularly a, a maritime security domain that, that, um, that Tom is going to talk about. But also that's a particular area that brings together, in particular, India and Australian strategic interests. So this is a way of reflecting the bilateral strategic interests that also relate to a broader quadrilateral, because many of the maritime security interests that Australia and India share in that region are the very same interests that Japan and the United States share in, in um, the East China Sea that all the states uh, are concerned about and have interest in, in the South China Sea and other parts. So there's a sort of an overlapping of both bilateral agendas here and multilateral um, agendas in, as well. 
And particularly that emphasis on the quad with its maritime security helps to provide greater balance, I think, to that Australia-India shared strategic and partnership um, in, in that particular part of the region where you've got also other organisations like, you know, the Indian Ocean Rim uh, Association and, of course, the bilateral work we do there. What I would say, though, about the quad when I consider it at the moment, and there's a number of people who've been pushing this agenda um, as well, is the need, I think, probably now to start to institutionalise the grouping, um, particularly around support. So this is coming together with the, the, the leaders groups or different meetings groups. Often um, we have to wait a long while, a year, for the leaders groups to turn up and set the agenda and figure out what's going on. And as that agenda has expanded, and Lavina said it, we've got six working groups now in two years but we have no mechanism really of coordinating that in a formal way. It's been very informal. Now, of course, it's been very decentralised. Now, anyone who's worked in a large organisation knows there's always the balance between the centralised and the decentralised. Decentralised can give you opportunity and you can be a bit more nimble at times. But you get to a level of point where, where you're doing so much and the risk is things start to slip through the cracks. And we've seen with some of the, the COVID vaccine um, commitments have not necessarily been fulfilled and my concern is they're not necessarily being fulfilled, not because of the interests, not because of the commitment, not because of the money provided, but because the mechanisms aren't there to ensure that they're delivered and they're coordinated and organised um, the way that they should be. And this also is important as the Quad starts to interact with other minilateral groupings and other countries in the region, specific countries where the Quad countries are coming together to deliver a public good in a particular region where they have to work with a, with a local state or with a group like ASEAN or the Pacific Islands Forum, Again, that lacking of that institutionalisation and the architecture that sits underneath it is just making that harder and harder because it keeps getting ad hoc and um, pulled together for bits and pieces here and there. Um, um, supply chains, I think, are a really important opportunity area for me. Um, and, I, and I like to use the notion of moving also ahead into secure supply chains. So we know there are going to be parts of critical technologies. We know there are going to be parts of critical minerals and critical goods that we now in the post-COVID environment we saw radically exposed many of our economies to disruption. Um, and so building trusted and secure supply chain networks with partner countries where we have agreements in advance of pandemics or other shocks to the international system, I think are going to be um, really important. The other thing I think there's an, there's an agenda here to do a bit more is on intelligence cooperation, particularly in the maritime domain. Now, Tom's going to talk about the maritime domain in more detail. But I just want to throw out there, there's maritime domain intelligence. There's a lot more we can do in that, and particularly in geospatial intelligence, and particularly on the Indian Ocean, where it's vastly underdone in comparison to, say, the East or the South China Seas, which gets a lot more focus from a whole range of uh, intelligence organisations, funnily enough, in different states and different countries. Um, I also think it's worth highlighting that, in my personal view, the really importance of this organisation focusing and remaining focused on the Indo-Pacific. Ukraine saw the first bit of a fissure in some of the relations between the states. When it started to drift into European politics and when it started to drift into more global things, it, what it exposed was that India had a different perspective and different view, for instance, than the United States and Australia and Japan had on some parts because of the very different strategic relationship India has with Russia. Now, that in no way, in my view, diminishes from the work the Quad is doing in the Indo-Pacific, where it actually should be focused. It doesn't affect that or diminish that in one little bit, but by actually getting out of region or out of area, it actually exposes it's it's not an organisation that's designed to be a global in its scope or to move beyond its. The interests of those four countries are interests that are aligned in that particular geographical region, 
which also happens to be the geographical region where it's the strategic center of gravity for the world now and the economic gravity of the world. So by rights, it should and continue to maintain. I think maintaining that focus is um, is really important. Said I'm a I'm a strategy guy. I'm a hard, more of a hard power guy. So public goods are great, and the intersection of of diplomacy um, and defence into statecraft is fantastic. But I think there are some unique uh, maritime security um, cooperation elements, as Lavina's uh, led to as well. I won't go into those because I know Tom's all geared up to talk about that. Thanks for setting that up very neatly for me, Peter. That's much appreciated. Now. We, we go through a panel, we have Tom go last, and we act like he can solve all the problems we've raised. So Tom, what are the solutions? No pressure, thanks, Mike. Um, I still have a job after this, right? We'll see. <laughs> um, so I don't think I need to rehash too much of what's already been laid out in terms of the some of the core logics that really lie at the heart of the Quad, both in its historical and its contemporary sense. I think maybe, though, it's useful to start with a shorthand summary of what the core aspect at the core of the logic really is, which is maritime security is at the heart of the core logic of the Quad, whichever way you look at it, whether it's through the hard power lens that some are starting to look at the Quad through in a meaningful way, but also whether you look at it through a kind of capacity building regional. Maritime security is the common thread there. That also goes to a point about the discussion about the form of the Quad's cooperation in the maritime security space. There seems to be a debate right now between like, is the Quad going to do defence or is it going to do the public goods provision? I think that's a false comparison. It's not black or white. Maritime security is both of those things. I think you've seen that play out in the first real sort of tangible maritime security initiative that the Quad has put together, which is the Indo-Pacific Maritime Domain Awareness Initiative. Like I won't go into all the details around this because it's quite technical, but basically this initiative takes commercial satellite data which is purchased by the four quad countries and basically funnels this to regional countries that don't necessarily have the capacity or the money to buy this for themselves, basically to help them understand what's going on in their regional waters and to help them you know, make the most of the maritime resources that are available to them, but also to, to police those resources based on their, you know, their lawful rights. I think this is really an example of the ideal sort of initiative for the quad to pursue. It's basically combining public goods provision uh, with the grouping's core logic around being a maritime security collective. Um, there are obviously core, um, or of, sorry, there are obvious clear order building and to use a term from the defense strategic update, I don't know if it's in the DSR, Peter, but shaping, there are clear shaping benefits to this agenda when it comes to, you know, the forms of cooperation the Quad is pursuing in the Indo-Pacific. There's also clear implications here for competition with China if you consider that 90% of illegal unregulated uh, fishing is largely conducted by Chinese fishing fleets. Um, and if you square that with the widespread use of fishing militias by China in its gray zone coercion activities across the region, the overlap is pretty self-evident if you ask me. That said, and as I argue in a forthcoming report, um, which is not just authored by an Australian, but is co-authored with an Indian, a Japanese and an American author to try and provide an integrated quad assessment of what is possible and what are the limitations. We basically say that the quad shouldn't necessarily stop here. There's, there's clearly a growing need to build out a broader maritime defense and security agenda to complement the common goods provision and the non-military activities, even if they do have some adjacent defense application, shall we say. It's pretty early days for quad deliverables 
overall. But I think to go to Lavina's point, it's quite instructive if you look at the progress that's being made between the Q2s and the Q3s, as I call them. So in other words, the bilaterals and the trilaterals that are constituent to the quad grouping upon which the quad realistically rests. If you didn't have these cross-bracing relationships between Australia, Japan, the United States, and India, and you didn't have the sorts of logistics, information sharing, access agreements that are starting to take shape between these countries, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. So it's really the fact that you know, the quad really is the sum of its parts, but it doesn't mean there isn't work to do in this space. Alignment here is never really going to be entirely seamless. I don't think you're ever going to jam the square hole, so to speak, but it doesn't have to be perfect. I think there's enough consensus to move in certain areas and in certain priorities where we agree that this sort of cooperation is needed. I think we agree fundamentally on two points, that the threat posed by the growth and the behavior of the Chinese Navy, the Chinese Coast Guard and fishing militias is growing and it's not going away. But I think India, Japan and Australia also agree that and the United States to some extent that there has been a relative decline in US power in the region and there's a greater need than ever for collective approaches to regional defense problems and challenges. So what exactly should the court do? In the report that I've co-authored with my co-authors, uh, we suggest five different categories that sit at the intersection of the urgent, but also the possible. And they kind of slide on a scale that if you start at the public goods provision end and end at the hard power, high-end deterrence end, if you will, there's a sliding scale of where these things sit along that spectrum. So if you start at the public goods end, you have things like coordinated capacity building in Southeast Asia, for example. IPMDA gives Southeast Asian states the information to act on what's happening in their waters if they have the capacity to do so, but they don't always have the capacity to do so. Individual quad countries are trying to help Southeast Asian states fill in those capacity gaps, but often they're doing it in ways that actually overlap with each other's efforts and create inefficiencies and, to be frank, inconveniences for Southeast Asian countries. There are plenty of instances where the US, Japan, and Australia are all administering English language programs in a particular Southeast Asian country, for example. So there's space there. But to of course, the American one is proper English, right? <laughs> we can have this debate offline, Mike. Next up, the next up the scale, you might have something like logistics and replenishment cooperation. This is as relevant to the resupply of warships in the event of a military crisis as it is to responding to the 2004 tsunami or a similar event that might occur in the future. You need these patterns of cooperation and these agreements in place beforehand to make sure that you can respond in a timely manner, no matter what the situation is. The next step up might be something like defense industrial cooperation. I mean, there are some areas where we're seeing Australia and the US deepen their cooperation on particular military capabilities. You're seeing Japan and the US also do that. India is looking for opportunities in that group. There are specific areas in the maritime security space where we could all be collaborating on new capabilities or at the very least distributing where we produce things that we all use. All four countries fly the P-8A maritime patrol aircraft, which is a key asset for monitoring all four countries' waterways and also prosecuting maritime domain awareness missions across, across the wider region. Fourth on that list, you might have something, as Peter mentioned before, around the maritime domain intelligence and maritime domain awareness piece. 
And then finally, at the very top end of the scale, and probably the most ambitious will be collaboration on something like anti-submarine warfare. You can't really sell this as a public goods provision piece of the Quad's agenda, but it really is something that all four Quad countries are interested in. And if you look at what's happening at Exercise Malabar, which is not technically a Quad exercise, but happens to feature all four of the Quad's members, ASW has really become the operational centerpiece of what that exercise is all about. So I guess the bottom line here is that I really do see possibilities, but also political willingness and a sense of shared urgency across the, the four quad countries to get after cooperation in these five spaces. I'm happy to talk more to any of those in the discussion, but I might end it there for now. So that was great. And I think, um, look, the, the, the Biden administration uh, is scrambling to set up state visits and other things to compensate for the president not going uh, to um, a PNG or coming to Sydney and Canberra. Um, so it's not cost free that he canceled, but I don't think anything we've heard up here stops or even slows as a result. No, no. Um, I want to ask each of the panelists about other panelists' observations, um, beginning with this question of institutionalization. Um, you know, as someone who's there at the not the 1856 origin, the 2004 <laughs> origin, um, I and a lot of my colleagues sort of thought the lack of institutionalization was always a real advantage to the Quad, yeah, particularly because India's the US, Japan, Australia, we have bilateral treaty alliances and Australia and Japan have quite a bit of institutionalization with the reciprocal access agreement and the security declaration from Perth last year. Uh, India has always been the pace setter. Um, and the lack of institutionalization is a bit of an advantage because for the Indian side, you can calibrate um, um, and have agility. But as Pete pointed out, the Quad is now promising deliverables. And who tracks that? Who shows it? Um, had there been a quad meeting in Sydney, um, uh, uh, my understanding is the institutionalization step forward would have been, drum roll, a quad website. <laughs> so um, that's about where the appetite is for the four countries, but I suspect primarily for the Indian side because yep. of the non-alignment history and all the rest. So let me sort of ask Lavina, this is your chance to talk a bit about India, but what do you think about institutionalization? Yeah. Is it is it a good idea, A, and B, is it doable, particularly with the Indian side? Yeah, I, I hate to disagree. Nope. Um, <laughs> I think at this stage of the Quad's development, I think you don't want to rush to institutionalize it. And I think um, it is legitimate to, to question, okay, you've got six working groups. It seemed... Every time they had a quad leaders meeting, they'd add a couple more yep. and a couple more. And we were, I, I for one, was starting to wonder, I think we should stop there and just <laughs> consolidate on what you've got. Mm. And um, there is enough there to work with. Yep. So I think the way it works now, they they set up a Sherpa for every country. And that one person at, in our country, it's uh, a, a very senior person in the prime, prime minister and cabinet office. And they are responsible for basically coordinating all the working groups in the various bureaucracies. Um, and I think you make a good point that um, that India is the laggard and their institutional capacity is always questionable, regardless of whether we're talking about the core. They just don't have enough people in the bureaucracy as it is to handle the many challenges that India faces. So I think that institutionalization is probably something to work towards in the future, but I think the nimbleness 
with which the quad should be able to work, I think because things are moving quickly, and that to me is a, is a an advantage right now, is that the quad, unlike other institutions, is not actually bogged down in all of the existing processes that they can actually work quite um, nimbly. So I think the institutionalization will come, but I. I hope they just consolidate on the, mm -hmm. the working groups for now and then maybe in a couple of years' time they can start thinking about um, doing that more in a concerted way. The capacity issues as a problem for India, when the Quad first stood up, my counterpart in the Ministry of External Affairs was Jai Shankar, who's now foreign minister. Um, that's always a confidence builder <laughs> when you watch your counterpart become foreign minister. But he was explaining this to us. He said, look, um, MEA, our foreign office, is smaller than the State Department. It's smaller than the Japanese Gaimusho Farm Ministry. It's smaller than DFAT. It's smaller than New Zealand's Farm Office. Yeah. This is, um, what, 17, 18 years ago. It's bigger now, yeah. but that is a constant uh, uh, challenge yeah. for India as well. And yet when you've, you've been in the Quad Investment Network and these Quad meetings, the 1.5 tracks things, and there is a, a remarkable ease with which the Indian participants discuss most of these issues, not all, yeah. with their American, Australian, Japanese counterparts. Pete, I'll let you defend yourself. In your love for bureaucracy, <laughs> but, but, let me also um, let me also ask you the logic you described in the DSR of Australia building statecraft, building partners, yep. points to the quad. Why not Korea? Why not Canada? Um, it was interesting. Um, the Korean uh, uh, conservatives um, in the last election—I uh, don't think President Yoon ever said it—but the conservatives said Korea will join the quad. The Canadian conservatives running against Trudeau. They also said in their party platform, we'll join the Quad. So the Quad is bipartisan. Yeah. Very, It's one of the strengths, yeah. by the way. Both parties, you know, Congress Party and BJP, Labor and Coalition, Republicans and Democrats. Um, and in Japan, even Hatoyama <laughs> was enthusiastic about the Quad. So it has a sort of, you know, bipartisanship. Uh, but um, there are others knocking on the door, usually conservative parties, but there's a logic for Korea. There's a logic for Canada. It's probably logic for UK and maybe even uh, other Europeans. W why not extend the logic or how do you um, bring on these other logical partners or or, or, or is it a la carte? Because, how do you do it? Because there's no bureaucratic organization to be able to fund that. <laughs> sort that out. Two um, for one. Two for one. Uh, look, and I, and I think this is about um, where the sweet spot for the quad is at the moment that we're, we're talking about. So there's been a, a rapid expansion in the last couple of years, particularly you know from the period around 2020 and onwards. So for the last three years, there's been a lot of really rapid developments. The concern that I have about the quad and one of the reasons I, you know, I'm interested in having in, you know, I'm not talking about a few, uh, a large bureaucracy. You know, Mike says that because he hears me ranting on my anti-bureaucratic rants often. So I don't want to, you know, replicate and create barriers um, to these types of things. But we've got six working groups. Um, I'm concerned you get to leaders meetings like this and everyone's looking for an announceable or, or a thing to prove that the quad is working or any organization is winning, is, is um, building on things. It's like almost, you know, even to the point where you know, the bilateral relationships with these different countries, it has to be bigger and better than the last bilateral meeting. What I worry about is the deliverables and the outcomes on these things. So getting runs on the board is really important, showing that you can really deliver. And uh, there's still a lot to come on this. We're, we're only, as Lavina said, only a couple of years into six working groups. We've had a COVID pandemic interrupt a lot of this. We've had a various um, uh, different changes. And now, an, you know, an interrupted meeting on a... Um, 
on a debt crisis in the United States, which, you know, uh, to add my two cents on that is, uh, is shouldn't be overblown. You know, the Biden administration has a near record, near perfect record of attendance at summits since it's been set up, much better than the Obama and Trump administrations as well, right? And you know why? Up until now, it wasn't near perfect because Biden, Biden missed uh, the 2022 Apex Leaders Meeting for something as shocking as attending his daughter's wedding, you know? So that, that's pretty good. But I think uh, we've got to explore the opportunities for the Quad to work with other countries who have similar like-minded interests. That's the whole purpose of um, creating an atmosphere of public goods, and creating an open liberal um, system that people can get involved in. So uh, having Korea or having um, Canada interested in being involved is good. But the concern I have is if you start expanding horizontally and you haven't delivered on you know, the agenda that you've already got, you um, create another avenue potentially for the, the breadth of this thing to get wider and the deliverables to be you know, still shallow. So I'd like to see a little bit more depth on the deliverables. You know, that that whole old saying of, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep, like that's not what you're really after. Mm. You need to get a bit of depth into the organisation, continue to have the conversations with countries like Korea. And we know Korea is an interesting example because their look south policy is somewhat restricted. They're looking, you know, they revived that, but still they're still coming to grips um, with what even the Indo-Pacific means as a concept for them. Um, and Canada, we've seen interesting debates in Canada about where their own foreign and uh, policy is and their position on the Indo-Pacific. So, yeah, a little bit more depth before you add some width is, is where I would go. Uh, quiz, the only American president who had a perfect attendance record for Asian summits was? Uh, Bush. Yeah. And his Asian advisor was? Uh, I'm just saying. Green? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a correlation, if not causality. Um, uh, so there were fewer, to be fair. Yeah. Um, Tom, uh, we'll get to questions in one sec, but Tom... Um, this question of institutionalizing in the direction of, you mentioned ASW, yeah. uh, other things in the menu could be a standing uh, Naval Task Force, but mm. typically the Quad sort of jumps to a new level in response to something China did mm. <laughs> to annoy India in particular, but the other countries. But then when the Quad jumps to that level, it says, oh yeah, you attacked our troops in uh, the Himalaya mountains? Oh yeah, we're gonna give you know millions of vaccines to Asia, right? It usually manifests itself in an outcome that at least visibly is more about public goods and sort of shaping and, yeah. and not. What will it take, do you think, to get to some of these um, more um, involved military relationships you've described? Do you think it's gonna require China to misbehave as in the past? Or do you think there's a natural momentum now with the growing military exercises and intelligence sharing? I think the timelines across the different categories I sketched out aren't necessarily equal. Mm. And I think it's going to be easier to get to cooperation in some of those spaces than others. I guess the other point to make is that if I don't hear about some of these forms of cooperation, that's awesome because some of the cooperation that should be happening in things like anti-submarine warfare and maritime domain awareness is probably good if we don't hear about it because it means it's operationally effective and that the secrecy around those operations are, are tight. Um, I think there are opportunities to not hard institutionalize, but maybe soft institutionalize things through you know, the Quad Maritime Security Working Group is probably a good example. That's a good place where you could be deconflicting duplicative lines of effort in Southeast Asia, for example. And that can happen right now. It doesn't take a, a Chinese miscalculation or a Chinese misbehavior in the region to do that because there is already a demand signal amongst the region 
or the kinds of cooperation you could deliver through that. That's why the Quad delivered IPMDA as well. Um, but things at the higher end level, the maritime domain awareness stuff, the anti-submarine warfare stuff, the momentum is there yeah. and it's moving quite noticeably in the bilaterals. If you mm. look at the details of the different exercises and the unscripted operations that are starting to happen. The reality is the Indian Navy and the Indian Air Force in particular gets a lot of kit from Russia, mm. but the high-end training they get is with the US, Australia, and Japan. Yeah. That's where they get to sort of Yes, exactly. They, and on yeah. and on key maritime capabilities like the PA yeah. I mentioned yeah. before, they're buying the MH60 maritime multi-role helicopter. They're also looking at buying the MQ-9B, the, the Sea Guardian mm -hmm. variant. That's a clear line of cooperation where the four countries are going to be employing these models or like models in the case of Japan. And that provides a natural vector for interoperability that can bypass a lot of the, the kind of technical problems that exist if you took a Russian system and tried to use it in collaboration with three countries using a US system. The tactical information thing is still an issue, the like the centrics or the the kind of the way that the countries share information in real time, particularly with India, needs some work. But there are some fixes that are starting to be developed in this space and in enough of a sense to give me confidence that we're actually moving in the right direction. And if you're India right now, you're probably wondering how reliable Russia is going to be for kit. Yeah, that's definitely definitely a strand of yeah. and, and, so, and the quality of that kit. And the quality, is it rattles around a lot yep. at 10,000 feet. So uh, let's take some questions. I have more myself, but I, I saw your hand up, sir. Um, if you wouldn't mind briefly telling us who you are, very briefly. Oh, I'm Ms. Cabarrus. I, um, I used to do a lot of work with the uh, UN and the OECD, particularly on multinational companies mm -hmm. and so on uh, while I was in the UK. I'm surprised. I'm surprised that none of you really made reference to the economic rivalry and different economic interests, particularly in relation to China, that the four members have. I mean, they're worried about supply chains, trade. Look at Australia. I mean, the impact that it has. Yeah. I mean, surely this kind of internal conflict must impact on the potential for this to be any kind of a success. You mean when you're talking about conflict, you mean the conflict among the quad countries or that they all have with China? They have different, they have a right rivalry and different interests in relation to China. Oh, I mean, they're right, right. Absolutely right. Putting yeah. Embargoes on, on yeah. the exports yeah. and imports and supply chains. Yeah. I mean, how does this help India and Australia and so on? Okay. Um, uh, do you want to start us off? Okay. Um, I think, um, we didn't talk about the trade issues, but I would put it towards, um, okay, when we talk about uh, de-risking or decoupling, I think de-risking is now the term that yes. we use more than we use decoupling. Um, the whole idea is not to um, completely disengage with China because that's almost impossible. I think it's just too costly for any, any economy to actually contemplate with China being the major trading partner of pretty much every country in Asia, let alone in Europe. Um, so when you say that there's a conflict uh, between the Quad countries, um, on some trade issues, sure, there will be. Um, you know, it's been very hard for Australia and India to, to put together a trade pact, and it took a very, very long time. Um, and even then, it's not a fully-fledged trade pact. So, yes, there, there are areas where they compete with one another, but where they are trying to uh, work together in the quad system is in um, critical minerals, um, critical technologies, emerging technologies. And in those areas, they don't have conflicts. In fact, they 
provide different parts of, of a supply chain or are in fact trying to create um, a system where they have um, a reliable supply chain that includes all of them so that they're not so, um, I guess, um, at risk of coercion from China at some future time. So yes, India and, and Australia compete on agriculture and agricultural products, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking really about high-end technologies and really critical industries. And they're um, in Japan, Australia, India, and the United States have quite compatible interests, I think. For historical perspective in the 1980s, um, the US and Japan significantly strengthened our security cooperation to contain the Soviets in the Far East, while the US and Japan fought like cats and dogs over trade. Um, and uh, so you, you can you can walk and chew gum at the same time, but you're absolutely right. The, 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 the sort of temperature, the appetite for economic relations with China is very different among the four. I've lived here nine months. It's very different between Western Australia and Canberra. <laughs> right. So um, there's always you're never going to even within national uh, systems, you're never going to get a perfect view. Um, you know, soybean farmers in the U.S., they don't want decoupling. Um, so there's there's always going to be a, a difference even within countries. Um, and I, I think you can see the difference among the four in the narrative about China. Um, the American discourse is, it, it, you know, you, you want to say, stop talking about China. It's, it's like, it, it's everything's about China. Um, in Australia and India, there's a lot more reticence in public, although not in private. Um, Japan's somewhere in the middle. Um, so even how we talk about the China challenge is different. Um, I personally believe and hear that in the four leaders meetings, which we don't get to see, there's actually a lot more convergence, but how they talk about it publicly, given different economic interests and geopolitical and political contexts and domestic politics changes. One thing that I think is clearly happening um, in terms of the economic significance of the Quad though, is because of de-risking from China, there is real interest in the US, Japan, and now Australia, Australia was last to the dance in, um, investing in India and in India as um, uh, uh, an alternative uh, because of over-dependence on China. Our surveys of the public in Australia and the US show that, tell me if I'm wrong, Victoria, but about two thirds of Americans and Australians, something like that, a yep. majority think that our economies are too dependent on China. Um, India is making full hay of that. Um, as Japan's geopolitical competition with China heated up in the 90s and 2000s, um, uh, India went from the bottom of the list to being the top recipient of Japanese um, uh, yen loans and official development assistance. Mm -hmm. The Mumbai Delhi Carter, I mean, massive investments. Well, the Koreans will tell you uh, they were embargoed over Lotte. Um, Beijing made nice. They're still embargoed. We'll see if it comes off. But of course, the trade minister should try to resolve that, right? Just as I would want the Secretary of Agriculture to keep soybeans going, right? We, we, it's not a simple linear thing. I do think, though, there is a clear appetite in Tokyo and now in Washington. The U.S. and India signed a major agreement earlier this year uh, to make it easier for India to get um, assistance from the U.S. on technology development. The Quad Investors Network, you may have heard of. Um, there's a geopolitical, but now an economic interest in the largest now 
country in the world by population, and what some what our economists think will be the largest economy in the world in 30 years, in, 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 in reducing reliance on China, increasing in India. When Beijing does things like float the possibility of an export ban on critical mineral process technology, that's just going to accelerate the interest in the quad creating those capabilities. So that is a geopolitical trend that I think is becoming an economic trend. You can even see it at the University of Sydney. Where did the Vice Chancellor Mark Scott take his big trip to get more students? India. 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 <laughs> so I think there's an economic geopolitical dimension. Doesn't mean decoupling, doesn't mean um, the trade minister shouldn't try to get barley back and stuff, but there is a bit of a trend you can see in the quad. Um, quickly, you can't talk about trade, bilateral agreements and stuff without uh, me saying the magical word, Mike, sugar, because that sends Mike into apoplectic. Fear. Yeah, Australia, yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> Australia and the US argue over sugar all the time. Howard and Bush had huge fights over sugar. Yeah. <laughs> I was Mike, there. And Mike was in the room, so it's like, whatever you do, Prime Minister, don't mention sugar, so... Yeah. Prime Minister mentioned sugar and they get into an argument. And if you look at the history of the US-Australian relationship, I mean, we talk a lot about how good it is and how we're cooperating on so many stuff. And that is certainly the case in the security, intelligence and other zone. But if you go back and look at the long history of it, particularly in the 80s and the 90s, God, we fought over trade. We fought bitterly over trade because we have different interests. And that will continue to happen in some particular areas. And, you know, there's always, the, you know, there's the accounts of how we're trying to use the security agreement with the Bush White House to go, well, give us concessions on trade and the Bush White House going, well, no, 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 wait, stop, two separate issues here. We can deal with security stuff here and the trade over here. So it's different interests. So the quad countries do have bilaterally different interests, sometimes quadrilaterally different interests. And there's no trade arm to the quad. Um, it's not what it's really about. But where it has come together, I just want to note, is on the issue of trade coercion. So this is one thing they do share an interest, that states shouldn't be using trade in coercive matters. And they've all, as was expressed earlier on, been subject to Chinese trade coercion against us. So when we got the 14 points that we were directed to follow, and when we got the trade coercion placed upon us by China, we went to the WTO and all of the other Quad partners joined with us as interested third parties to prosecute that. Why? Because... None of the countries agree that that type of behaviour is acceptable in the open system that we want to have. The trade coercion is not something that we should that should be supported. So why we may differ amongst our things on different things we trade with, because we have different economies and stuff, there are some things around trade that unify us and that where the Quad's been effective is uh, supporting each other on trade coercion issues. Which is also one of the um, issues for the G7 summit is countering yeah. uh, economic coercion. Um, it was a good question. I mean, there are these are these are there are big differences. Other other questions or comments uh, from the yes, and we'll get to you next. But thanks, everyone. Um, Jane Spicer from Qantas. Um, I just had a question picking up Peter on your point about the rapid development and also the bilateral um, aspects to it. Do you think um, obviously there's a lot of bilateral relationships and it goes up and down with all the uh, Quad nations with China. Do you think the Quad can um, keep pace with a lot of these rapid developments and also keep those bilateral ups and downs from distracting them from what they want to achieve? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, look, I, I think so far they've managed that um, pretty well. And I think Tom's made a really good observation on the security side, which I mainly deal with. Obviously, there's a much tighter Australia-US-Japan-US or Australia-Japan-US security relationship than we have individually, bilaterally with, um, with India. 
But I think one of the things probably in Australia and in parts of the region that's really underestimated is actually the extent of the Indian-Japanese bilateral cooperation on security um, issues, which is rapidly advanced in particular areas. And these, as Tom has mentioned, form a, a broader cross-bracing framework that allow and I think gives opportunities where they can explore things bilaterally and even sometimes trilaterally that can then move potentially into that quadrilateral, minilateral um, area and zone. So, um, you know, you can do things in a bilateral exercise, India and Australia, now that we've got, you know, the India-Australia Defence Security Cooperation Agreement, which is, you know, only in itself pretty recent. Um, that's a massive step and leap forward. As you do more things bilaterally in that, that creates a greater space then to go, well, can we do this in a Malabar exercise or some other exercise and leverage off that? So I think what the countries are currently doing is looking at synergies. I think why you say that's a really interesting point is I can't, and the other panellists correct me because they probably know better than me, I can't think of a real sticking point they've hit to yet, but that doesn't mean it's not coming. And that so it's probably not been a real test um, of this. And one of the reasons is because the acceleration, as Mike was saying, about the quadrilateral relationship, which is very much often tied to how quickly the Indians can or want to go, is directly resulted by what happened on the line of control. And, and the Chinese deciding to take a much more aggressive and much more bullish um, approach to India. And India deciding to solve this issue or address this issue horizontally by not necessarily responding on the line of control, but hey, but we're going to go over here and do something with the quad or over here to do something bilaterally and address that in different ways to shape the region in an asymmetric manner rather than a, to take a sort of a, a, a direct response option. So and, it's and, really interesting. And, and I'd add to that, it's not, it's not just in the Himalayas. I mean, India is watching, um, uh, you know, Guadalajara and Pakistan, Chakpan and in Myanmar, um, uh, in Cambodia, now potentially Vanuatu, um, this um, Chinese pursuit of dual use, yep. military yep. use, um, ports and infrastructure, Myanmar, uh, which Indian strategy called String of Pearls. Um, so it's not that the four neighbors are going to head to the Himalayan mountains unless climate change gets really bad. Um, <laughs> it, it, there is a maritime dimension to the security challenge to India that I think adds even more glue yep. to this relationship. Mm -hmm. And Pete makes a good point. This is not, um, the, 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 the Beijing narrative is this is America creating, what is it, small groups and Cold War cliques. But the, the, the drive in the quad, the US pushes for the summits, that's definitely a key piece, but the agenda and the energy comes from what's happening in the bilateral relationships. And Japan, India has been consistently strong since about 2006. Yep. And Abe and Modi, I used to have my students Google Modi hugging in uh, <laughs> Google image. And the world leader he hugs the most or hugged the most was Abe. Mm. And if you know, Japanese aren't big huggers. <laughs> um, uh, so that, that and um, uh, US was a bit hot and cold with India. Uh, Obama was not as interested in Bush. Uh, Trump administration was very interested. People wondered about the Biden administration. Biden has made this a core part of his foreign policy. The bilateral relationship that has been slowest, we talked about India as a laggard. Frankly, the slowest has been India-Australia. And um, it's not all India's fault. <laughs> I think you'd agree. <laughs> um, but it's rapidly changing. Yeah, yeah. just quickly. Um, I think if you look at some of the cooperation that's happening in the maritime space in the Indian Ocean, India is actually out ahead of where I think at least the Quad countries ought to get to. So I mentioned 
the Australia India unscripted operations that are happening. If you look at what India is doing with France as well across the Western Indian Ocean, there are similar patterns of cooperation there. If you look at the capacity building, it's extending to Indian Ocean, but also frankly Southeast Asian nations around helping them build their law enforcement and military capacity. I actually think India isn't as much of a laggard as we as it used to be, but as as much as it is often framed as continuing to be now. You just have to know where to push in the right place to find progress. Um, I saw other hands earlier. Yeah. And what are we, what are we doing for time? Yeah, we're good. Go ahead. Um, thank you. Um, Tony Booth, long-time participant in many of these seminars. Um, just a quick point before I forget. Make it brief, Tony. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Dr. Lee, you have to re-watch the old episodes of Utopia. And for Mark, if you're not sure what it is, it's a satire. I know it. You know, good. Okay. Yeah. Um, last night, 10.30, and the previous day, we had Charles Adele, a former uh, fellow here at the, at the centre, uh, and now Australia Chair of the CRSS, um, interview for an hour, Sir Angus Houston, and he went through the DSR. And then before that, they had a discussion with people like Rory Metcalf and a whole series of others, on writing what a, a national uh, national strategy policy would be. Um, some people have critiqued DSR as being out of sync in terms of which part you do first. By and large, they've been able to cobble together a report in six months' time. When you look at the content of the presentation last night, there was a lot of stress on the role of diplomacy, boosting DFAT, a whole series of other things. It wasn't simply let's go and buy eight submarines, it takes 20 years. And by the way, we hope that China doesn't start a war in four years time, otherwise we're screwed. The common perception I would think is that if you're gonna spend 350, $360 billion over a period of 30 years, you don't get their submarine for ages. And why are we fighting our largest trading partner? If you were minister for defense or other people in the cabinet, how would you put an argument okay. to the Australian people to convince them that this approach is valid? And what aspects would you draw out in terms of diplomacy and all the other um, arms of government that you can deploy? All right, let's repeat. On the, on the, on the capabilities building will take a while. Um, anybody who takes international relations theory 101 knows there are two ways to maintain or restore the balance of power. You build up your own capability or you build up friends. Building up friends is faster. <laughs> it, it's, it's one reason why the quad is so important because capabilities and, and leasing three subs is yeah. helpful too. That also helps. Um, so, Pete, a, a very simple observation that the in 1914, the two countries who had the most and largest European bilateral trade was Great Britain and Germany. Yeah. Didn't stop the First World War happening. So, there's a litany of examples. Great, let him... There's a litany of examples in history where you may build up a trade relationship with another country. But that that doesn't restrict from conflict from occurring. So this notion that because they're our largest trading partner, we wouldn't go to war with them, I think is a bit of a fallacy. But the other thing I would say is we don't want to go to war with them. You know, the whole purpose of the DSR and defence policy and foreign policy is to maintain regional peace and security. At the very beginning of DSR, the leads wrote the statement that our objective here is to maintain peace and security. So you don't so, want to, 20, 20, but 20. you have to prepare for the worst case scenario. So that's what defence policy is different to many other parts of public policy that we do in Australia. It's very different to housing policy or whatever. You know, you can have a housing policy to build an extra 100 houses, build the houses, you know, you've achieved it. Um, 
you know, spending money on defense on the on on the plan to stop you from going to war will not going to war you can never really know whether it was that defense spending that caused that or some other factor um so it's a little bit different in that regards but um the emphasis on diplomacy is is, is important because the emphasis on statecraft is important and the reason that is done in the way that it's happened is because the challenge that we face as a country in the region is different to what we faced in 70 years not just our challenge, it's a challenge India is facing, the United States, Japan is facing. I mean, Japan and Korea, it's much more geographically close to them. Um, what we have is an unprecedented military build-up, the largest since the Second World War, by a state in the region that's an authoritarian state that's using coercive trade powers and coercive military power to extend its, uh, its believed sovereign rights in particular regions at the deficit of other states and their sovereignty in the region. Penny Wong made it really clear. What is the end game that Australia does, wants to avoid? That is another state becoming um, primacy in the region that will impose a hierarchical order and remove the ability of Australia and other states to maintain their sovereignty. That's the situation we want to avoid. And more broadly, what the to bring it back to the Quad, what the Quad is attempting to do is support that strategic balance in the region to maintain that free, open and liberal order where states maintain their sovereignty and can make choices about who they want to trade with and where, where they want to cooperate with on everything from vaccine diplomacy through to maritime security mm -hmm. without being coerced by any other state to do it in a particular way to that state's interest. It is a funny show. I've I've seen it. And it's a funny episode when they have the cabinet meet yep. and the army is trying to explain why they're building military capabilities to defend sea lands and fight their largest training partner. I'm waiting for the parody in Beijing where the Central Military Commission is, is meeting and people ask Xi Jinping, the chairman, why are we developing uh, 10,000 nuclear warheads, the largest Navy in the world, double digit defense increases for almost three decades to fight our largest trading partner, which is the when United the States. legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party has been so dependent on economic growth. And the answer is nobody asked that question because in the Central Military Commission, it's only military people in Xi Jinping. There isn't that debate, I fear. Let me get to the question that I saw. Yes, ma'am, please. Um, my name is Marilyn Quant uh, from the government Department of Government and IR. Uh, you said it's I'm a PhD student, and I just wanted to ask Peter with regard to institutionalization of the Quad that you spoke about. Um, is the narrative of the bureaucracy of India being used as as a, that it is a lagard? Is that being used in order to cover up the idea of the to de-risk China's position in the region? Did you, did you follow that? Yep. Yeah. Um, no, look, I, I was actually only doing some reading on this the other day by a couple of former senior Indian public servant foreign office officials. And they were making the, the real point about, you know, India is now the largest population state. They were talking about the economic growth and they were charting that against the total underinvestment in the diplomatic arm of the Indian state and how if India really wants to take its place as a major power, as a real player on the world and international stage, you do that through your diplomats, through your statecraft, through your diplomacy, and that's all about building capability. And if you don't have that capability, it really restricts your ability to do that. So I think that a capacity issue, um, I think is one of the real keys. Um, Australia's basically been in a similar position. If you look at DFAT, and I say this as a defence person, right, as ex-army and worked on the DSR and spend all my time with defence, like 
DFAT were overjoyed to see that a defence document said we should lead with statecraft and you the government needs to fund DFAT more because we've known now from both sides of politics, so this has been a bipartisan thing for over 15 years, has been the underinvestment in DFAT, the underinvestment in DFAT capabilities. So putting that first, one of the nice things about the budget to give the government their due, they didn't give defence extra money, and I personally would argue that's a good thing because defence probably wouldn't spend it properly at the moment while they reorganise themselves as a result of DSR, but where they did give money was to DFAT, which the strategy said lead with that first. And that's, they've just done a deep, big DFAT capability review. And what they're doing is investing, we're opening, we're sending more diplomats overseas, we're recruiting more, we're opening more missions overseas, and we're rebuilding that diplomatic capability to lead that statecraft effort. India is in probably a worse position than, than Australia and DFAT is in relation to that. And that what they need to do is invest in that as well to give then India the choice and the option of where they want to invest that um, capability in is it building up the quad, is it working on their bilateral relations in South Asia, is it doing whatever it might be, but you've got to have the capability first, and that's really lagged, I think, in, in India. Um, I mean, Levina would know this better than me, you know, but and uh, but that's where I think that sits. It's more about a capability issue. Is your dissertation topic in any way related to, to this question? No, it's not. It's okay. on <laughs> Indian foreign policy and leadership, but that makes me think of, just taking it from Peter once more, I'm sorry, but that makes me think of the concept of state sovereignty that you mentioned to your previous answer. When you're talking about it allows states to therefore use their bilateral and trilateral relations in order to maintain regional peace and security. So to me, it kind of feels like institutionalization of the Quad would actually be a threat or stir up issues with China more. It, as it, would, be with well, it would stir up issues. It, it, it would stir up. It almost China. certainly would. It would. I, so I yeah, think that would, a be a prediction. Very, that would be a very... Political science is all about predictions. I think exactly, that's a Exactly. That would be a very good narrative <laughs> for why we're not having institutionalization. Yeah, I think that's... The bureaucracy yeah. of I think that's probably... I think you're right. I, th I think it's... it's There is... there is the. I, I think that's right. There's a capacity issue in India. That's yeah. true. There's concern about China. There's also concern about Southeast Asia, which yeah. I wanted to ask uh, yeah. Levine about. I'm surprised it didn't come up. But before I do, if I could just quickly recommend a reading to you. Um, <laughs> uh, in, in, in the 1890s, the U.S. produced more coal and steel than Germany or France or Britain. I mean, the U.S. was an economic superpower. But the State Department had no professional foreign service. Um, we had no national security state. There was nothing like the NSC. There was no career civil service. We were, you know adolescent in our governance and our and, our, and uh, Fareed Zakaria has written his dissertation actually at Harvard his first book was on this how the United States developed the institutions to catch up with its economic power and world role there's another book by Warren Zimmerman that talks about the same thing I think that may be the story of India <laughs> yeah. I think that the demands of international presence and influence uh, create those signals are read by the government, by the people, and you get these institutions. And to the, there's different levels of institutionalization too. So if you look at uh, classic examples, the US-Australian bilateral alliance, you know, mm. under ANZUS, compare it to almost every other bilateral, like the US has, um, say, with Korea, with Japan, also its multilaterals with NATO, it's completely underdeveloped from its institutionalization. That may be for a whole range of different um, reasons. So you can have different levels of institutionalization. I'm not talking here about a massive like NATO-like architecture and structure. 
You know what I mean? But what I worry about is just the capacity. The reason I'm interested in this is I worry about the capacity of the quad to deliver on the agenda mm. that it's created for itself without the architecture to sit under that to actually make it happen. There is an expectation problem now, isn't there? Yeah. 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 Livina, can you talk about Southeast Asia? Yeah, um, um, I, I think it kind of... Uh, Sort of jumping in there where we had a question i'm not sorry i don't know your name but um about what might be slowing down the quad um and i think it might actually be the issue of southeast asia mm -hmm. um, and how to deal with southeast asia and to progress the quad in a way that reassures southeast asia so um from from my perspective asean's anxieties about the quad are threefold um firstly they uh, fear being caught up in a conflict in this region um, secondly, they fear being forced to pick a side. That's a, a constant refrain in any workshop I think any of us have <laughs> ever been to with Southeast Asian. Asians don't force us to pick a side. And third, to lose relevance. So ASEAN centrality is always um, part of the con conversation. So I think the way the, the quad has been put together so far is as much about um, calibrating a uh, message to China um, that things will be ratcheted up according to how China behaves. And that seems to be the way the Quad has developed as China provokes the Quad response. Um, but it's all also about reassuring Southeast Asia about um, that ASEAN will remain central, that ASEAN countries will be listened to, and that the Quad, I, I think that's part of the messaging and the focus of the Quad has been all about uh, providing public goods. So public goods to show that the Quad is not just an anti-China coalition. It's more than that. It's also demonstrating to the region that, uh, you know, a bunch of um, the most uh, capable countries in the Indo-Pacific can actually get together with the kind of um, sorry, um, political and economic systems that they have to provide the public goods that Southeast Asia really wants and to do so in a way that doesn't ask them um, to do anything in particular, that it's a, a kind of risk-free um, proposition. We will give you certain things, um, but we're not asking you to then be beholden to us in any way. Yeah. Um, and that's a distinction to say the vaccine diplomacy that China put forward. One, um, it, was, it wasn't just a, a free gift. Um, there were strings attached to those uh, vaccines that were de delivered. So the, the Quad is really trying to show that, no, we, we do it differently. Um, and we're actually trying to uh, help these countries to help themselves to build their own capacities to, as, as um, Tom was talking about, the maritime domain awareness is, is about helping Southeast Asian countries help themselves to police their mm. um, EEZs. And that might be next in the form of more coordinated capacity building yeah. um, for those countries. Um, so I, I think what one last point that I'd like to make, and I think Tom might have something to say about this, but um, I've been in a series of workshops with Southeast Asian uh, scholars, and what persistently comes up um, quite frustratingly, uh, and it ties back earlier to our conversation about deterrence. Um, so the DSR and what Australia is trying to do is to avoid war, through a deterrence strategy. So uh, deterrence here is by denial. It's, it's not about imposing costs um, on China in a, in a kind of punishment kind of way, but it's a, it's a more defensive type of deterrence. Um, and what's interesting when you talk to Southeast Asians is that they seem to have absorbed the rise of China or China's 
uh, dominance of this region as something inevitable. Um, and so when they fear uh, what the Quad does or what um, AUKUS might do, um, they're actually uh, resisting it because they view what we do through AUKUS, the DSR, through the Quad as potentially the destabilizing uh, agents here, rather than China being the destabilizing agent. So I think that's a kind of an interesting um, distinction. Uh, I found it an interesting distinction, somewhat frustrating distinction, that they viewed our efforts to deter China from actually um, seizing Taiwan by force, for example, as actually being the destabilizing force rather than what China is doing in harassing Taiwan in the Taiwan Strait. Did you want to add, Tom? Yeah, just two quick points, I guess. Um, the first one being quad engagement with Southeast Asia isn't necessarily about swinging Southeast Asian states to sit on our side in air quotes. It's about empowering them to make choices that they want to make based on their national interests. And if that's a choice of being a neutral party, then that is actually not all that bad from a quad collective perspective. I guess the other point I'd say is that I think you're starting to see more public expressions from senior leaders across Southeast Asia of support for elements of the Quad's agenda. I think you've seen senior Singaporean defense officials come out and say that the Quad has a constructive role to play in Southeast Asia. You've seen the president of Indonesia make similar comments, I think, just in the last week or two. Mm -hmm. So I think there, there is appetite across Southeast Asia for engagement with the Quad. It just has to be in a way that works with the pace at which they're willing to work at and kind of takes into account their sensibilities and their equities. Can I add a slightly cynical note of disagreement on this point? <laughs> um, but preface it first by saying I agree with Tom and Levine and I agree with, you know, the four governments. The current discourse, the current emphasis is absolutely right. I wouldn't change it. It's about um, resilience and helping governments choose their own destinies without coercion. And I wouldn't change that at all. But I do think there's a bit of a, in my view, a bit of an analytical flaw in parts of DFAT, State Department, and the diplomatic and academic communities on this. Southeast Asian countries, they want agency. They don't want necessarily the Quad to go away. If Paul Keating became prime minister tomorrow and said, good news, we're abandoning the Quad. Um, we're going to seek strategic rapprochement with China. In Singapore, in Indonesia, especially in Vietnam, there'd be absolute panic. <laughs> So I think that the, the probably the preferred, and there are different views in the quad, but the preferred sort of vision is like a medieval church in Europe with the flying buttresses, these huge, almost ugly, massive stone things holding the church up. But when you're inside the, the nave, when you're inside the church, you never see them. You just see the beautiful stained glass windows. I think within the strategic communities, at least in most of Southeast Asian governments, there is a recognition that the balance of power is becoming fragile and that steps are needed. Um, three years ago, you were involved in this. Um, CSIS did a survey of strategic thinkers in Southeast Asia. One question was, what organ regional organization is best at um, maintaining order in the region? Um, in Vietnam, the Quad beat ASEAN by a wide margin. <laughs> and as I recall, in Indonesia, it was pretty close. So um, it's the right policy. We've got the right discourse, the right strategy, but we shouldn't assume that somehow there's like deep dislike of the quad. I suspect it's quite the opposite. At some level, there'd be quite a bit of panic if we took a different tact. I, I don't think, I don't know I, no, I, I agree with you, um, but I, I think that when you start talking about the prospect of conflict and war, 
there's a lot of panic in the opposite direction. So so I think when when they see things like the AUKUS agreement, um, I think ICS does a, a, a great survey every year of elite opinion and elite opinion on the quad has warmed considerably. Yep. Um, I wrote down some statistics. I think uh, in 2022, um, we've got 58% of respondents agreeing that strengthening of the quad and tangible cooperation in areas like vaccine security and climate change is positive and reassuring. And they I think 38% of recipients viewed China as a revisionist power. So you can see in that in that answer, they're very reassured about the Quad because it's about right. public goods. Uh, but if okay. you ask them a question uh, about AUKUS, and I didn't write down the stats on that, it was much less That's, positive yeah. about yeah. AUKUS. It was more like 33% who thought so it I was a positive thing. A quick two yeah. finger on scholars. Um, in terms of predictions for political science, I'm going to Singapore on Monday. I guarantee you I will hear ASEAN centrality ad nauseum. That's yes. a prediction I think you can bank on. Yeah. Um, uh, but ASEAN has to, I, I think, you know, ASEAN centrality can only go so far if ASEAN as an organisation doesn't reform. And I think there's different roles and tasks for these different minilateral organisations that don't have to exist in, in, in either one or the other. They can coexist because they have ultimately different roles and different ideas and they're fulfilling a, um, uh, a need and a, and a, a requirement that the, the region, because the region is changing so rapidly and so quickly that we need to adjust the institutional architectures and the frameworks and the different groupings that we have to achieve um, those different things as well. Yeah. So I um, began by quoting obscure American, you know, strategic thinkers from the 19th century. I'll end in the same way and pick up on Levina's point about um, uh, how we present the quad, what the quad is seen doing, um, but the subtext everyone understands. And that's to quote Theodore Roosevelt, who said, speak softly, but carry a big stick. <laughs> um, so thank you. There's a great panel, Tom, Pete, Levina, thank you. Great questions. Thank you all for coming. And with that, we will go home and think more about the quad on our own. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you.